God is always pictured for us as the initiator of salvation. God is always the first mover. God is always the one who moves towards us. Here we see, after John was arrested or John was handed over, Jesus came into Galilee. So Mark has now set this up to get John out of the way, out of the story. So again, when we looked at this chronologically, we saw that John is not quite out of the way that quickly. But can you see here how Mark just wants to tell the story that way? Not like he's changing the story or changing the events, but you see how he's telling the story in such a way that the impression we get is that John has to be removed. John has to be taken out of the way because here Messiah is ready to come front and center. Okay, so we, we saw from Matthew's gospel, or I'm sorry, from John's gospel, didn't we? How there became sort of this conflict between John the baptizer and Jesus. Not directly between them, but, but sort of this conflicting popularity. There was John the baptizer. People were still going to him to being baptized. But then Jesus' popularity was growing. And it's almost like it's this sense in which in order for Jesus to now take the center stage for which he is anointed and appointed to do, John has to get out of the way. Because as long as John is still there baptizing, he's a distraction, so to speak. So you see how God takes uh, takes John the baptizer out of the way by means of his being handed over or by means of his arrest, which all came at the hands of Herod. So here we see, once again, God doing what we've seen him do so many times before with the Pharaoh, with Nebuchadnezzar, with King Cyrus, with Caesar Augustus and the census. God freely, willingly, at his pleasure, uses pagan kings who don't even know his name to do his will in his timing, just like he wants it done to take John the baptizer out of the way so that Jesus can now take center stage. So John the baptizer is now going to be imprisoned. We'll read in about five chapters about his execution. But of course, we understand nothing could have touched John the baptizer until God was done with him. He was invincible. He was bulletproof. He was indestructible. He was untouchable until God was done with what God wanted John the baptizer to do. Now that he is, then Now now he will continue to play in God's role as God will have him to do. So Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he will. So here we see this playing out in exactly that way from Proverbs 21, verse 1. Now, after John was handed over, Jesus came into Galilee. So if you like to draw in your Bibles, here's a good one. If you want to draw a circle around that word came, Jesus came, and you want to draw another circle around verse uh, 7, and he preached saying, After me comes he who's mightier than I. If you want to draw a circle around comes in verse 7 and came in verse 14, and then draw a great big straight line between the two of them, that's what we're supposed to see. John just was prophesying, After me comes one greater than me. Now verse 14, and he came. See that? After me comes one, verse 14, and he came. So he came now into, and that's again why 
Mark wants to put this front and center, verse 14, front and center, because this is the coming that John the baptizer was talking about. After me comes him, and he came, verse 14, and he came into Galilee. Now, why would Jesus, do you think, choose to leave Judea and go into Galilee? I mean, Judea, that's where Jerusalem is. Judea is sort of the center point of the religious life of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that's where the the Pharisee population was. That's where the religious leaders were. That's where the temple is. That's where Jesus is going to be crucified. Why would Jesus want to leave Jerusalem in order to go to this place, Galilee, which as from the map we saw is so far north? Well, I think there's a couple reasons there. One, we saw in Matthew's gospel, chapter four, to fulfill prophecy, because it was prophesied that the people living in that region are going to see the light. So Jesus's home base, his ground zero, so to speak, is going to be there because that's what the prophets prophesied from Isaiah, that those people living in that area are going to be the ones that see the light. So that's one reason. The other reason is, I think, just what we alluded to earlier, and that's the fact In Jerusalem, Jesus was going to meet against a lot of hostility. If you think back to John's gospel, John's gospel, of course, we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those three synoptic gospels kind of follow the same track. And then you got John way over here all by himself doing his own thing. In John's gospel, you read about a lot of hostile conversations, don't you? tense conversations between the Pharisees and Jesus because John wants to focus on that last week or so in which Jesus was in Jerusalem and there were so many angry, hostile conversations between the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and Jesus. And so you can just see the hostility there. So I think that what Jesus wants to do, he needs to sort of leave that in order to establish his ministry in order to perform his miracles. Remember what Mark's going to say in chapter 13? Even Mark's going to say that in Nazareth, he didn't do many, many mighty miracles there because of their unbelief. So Jesus, I think, wants to get out of Jerusalem. He needs to prophesy. He needs to tell his parables, his teachings. He needs to perform his mighty signs. He needs to have people who are receptive to his message prior to the hostility that is to follow. Because Jesus, chapter 10, verse 45, is going to lay down his life, but he doesn't want to do it yet. He wants to do that in his own time. He doesn't want the antagonism and the hostility now. He needs to now build up his followers. He needs to to invest some teaching into them, the signs and wonders and all that. And then when the time is right, as Mark's going to tell us in just a moment, when the time is right, that's when Jesus will lay down his life for his sheep. So he leaves and he goes to this area of Galilee. Galilee would have been a very multi-ethnic sort of area, very diverse. Multiple languages would have been freely spoken in Galilee, not only Hebrew and Aramaic, but but you would also experience Greek, Latin, you would experience Persian, you would experience a number of different ethnic groups and languages. You have experienced people of different backgrounds. Galilee was a much different place than Judea. And so Jesus goes here to Galilee and he's going to eventually live in this place, uh, Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee. Now we'll talk next week a great deal about the Sea of Galilee and we'll talk about life there at the Sea of Galilee and what that would have been like because the Sea of Galilee, even to this day, 
is one of the world's premier bodies of water for producing fish. It's an extraordinarily fruitful fish-producing area. So the, the, the lifestyle there, all of it would have centered around fishing. It would have been a place in which it was a good living could easily have been made fishing and was. And so that'll come into play as Jesus calls these fishermen to leave what they're doing and to follow him. So we'll get into that next week. So he's going to go into this area of Galilee, an area that is has much, much fewer Pharisees and uh, much fewer religious leaders. And this is going to be the center point of his ministry. So again, verse 14. Now, after John was given over or arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. And what does he come into Galilee doing? Proclaiming the gospel of God. Your translation might say the gospel of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying. So two participial phrases, both in the present tense. So they're telling us that this is what Jesus was continually doing. He was continually proclaiming and continually saying. So this was like his mantra. And of course, Mark is not telling us here that Jesus just sort of said the same phrase over and over. He's telling us that this was the substance of everything Jesus was saying. This was the substance of his messages. This was the substance of his teaching. The substance is that he is proclaiming or heralding because he is the king. And that's what kings do. They herald proclaiming or heralding the gospel of God or the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying or teaching. And here's what he's teaching. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here's Jesus with this message. The time is at hand. Repent and believe. We see here once again that God in the scriptures is always pictured for us as the initiator of salvation. God is always the first mover. God is always the one who moves towards us. God is always the one who reaches towards us. It is not the people who are seeking out Jesus and saying, Jesus, what can you tell us about the Father? Instead, it's the other way around. It's Jesus who is going to the people because God is always the initiator, the first mover of salvation. So here he goes to the people and here's what he's saying. He's saying continually, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So let's talk for just a minute about, first of all, the time is fulfilled. So in the Greek language, there's two ways of expressing the word time. There's the word chronos and there's there's the word kairos. Now, those two words have a completely different meaning in terms of speaking about time. Chronos, we recognize that word because a lot of our words use that word. Chronometer, chronology, we used that word earlier. Chronos speaks of time in the sense of the passing of time. What time is it or what chronos is it? That's just the moving of time, the passing of time. But the other word is the word kairos, and that doesn't speak of the passing of time. Instead, that speaks of time in the sense of the most opportune moment, the the moment at which change is about to happen, the moment at at which a different direction is taken, the moment, or if you will, the moment of reckoning, that moment in which everything changes. That's the kairos. And Scripture uses, our New Testament uses that word quite frequently, and it always uses that word in the sense of of communicating that there is a time for a decision to be made. There is a time for a change to be made. This is the time. Just one example from Luke chapter 19, verse 44. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the kairos, the time of your visitation. There was a moment, there was this opportune moment, 
You missed it. You didn't see it. It was the moment of reckoning, the moment at which change was to take place. It was that moment where you meet the crossroads and you didn't recognize it. You didn't see it. That's Jesus's point there. So that's the meaning of kairos. We don't really have a good one-to-one equivalent in English of the, the dynamic between chronos and kairos. The closest we can come, I'm going to steal a uh, an illustration here, an analogy from R.C. Sproul, uh, because this is about the best we can do to kind of get our arms around how the two of these terms work differently and how they work together. And the two terms that would come close in English would be the term historical and historic. So historical and historic. You can hear there that they, I mean, there's only a couple letters different. They sound very much alike. They both are coming from the word history. Historical and historic, but they have very different meanings. So historical means simply something that took place in history, something that happened. If something happened, it's historical. In a couple of days, let's say Tuesday of this week, you can say, we can rightfully say, that Pastor Jason preached Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, and it was historical because it took place in history. But the word historic is very different because the word historic doesn't mean it's something that took place in history. It means it's something that changed things. It's something that stands out. It's something that's memorable. It's something that should not be forgotten. So you can rightly say on Tuesday afternoon, you can rightly say Pastor Jason preached Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, and it was historical. But you can't rightly say it was historic. What we talked about earlier, June 6, 1944, was historic and historical. That's kind of the difference between Kronos and Kairos. And so here's what Jesus says. The Kairos, the moment, that moment of reckoning, that opportune time, that moment at which all of history hinges is, Jesus says, fulfilled. That's the word that we get our word plenary from. It just means filled to capacity, filled to overflowing. Scripture uses that word a lot to describe something that's filled to overflowing. Just picture a cup that you fill all the way up and you sort of keep pouring and it just overflows. So the kairos, The moment of opportunity, the the moment at which history changes is filled to overflowing. And this is Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled. Uh, Paul uses the exact same words in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. So here we see that once again, we are reminded that human history is completely in the hand of of the sovereign creator. God has brought all these things together in exactly the moment that he did, in exactly the way that he did, in exactly the time that he wanted them to bring. This kairos, this moment of opportunity was exactly when God wanted to bring all this together and which is exactly what he did. God does not look down upon human history as it's unfolding and sort of make a correction here and make a correction there and make a little adjustment there. God controls all of it. God is in complete sovereign control 
of all of the unfolding of human history, and all of it happens as He desires, when He desires, here we're reminded that this most opportune of events, this fullness of time happens as God exactly wants it to happen.